We're in our final weekend, everybody, of a message series where we're studying the passages that are discreetly printed on some of the stuff you buy over at In-N-Out. It's really been a fun series. It's taken us all over the Bible. Today's verse is Nahum 1-7, found on the double-double wrapper. What's a double-double? A good burger, bro. You got to get one. Uh, so it's a good verse for a good, a good burger. I already messed this up. Okay. About a good God. All right. It's a win-win. Let's, let's look at the passage. Let's, let's, let's memorize it. Here it is. Uh, and it's full. It's that Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Okay. Let's break this into three parts and memorize it together. Okay. First part. The Lord is good. Everybody say that. The back is not saying it. Come on. You got it? Thank you. All right. What does it say? The Lord is good. All right. Here's the next part. A stronghold in the day of trouble. One, two, three. Okay, take it away. A stronghold in the day of trouble. All right. And then the last, this is the longest part. He knows those who take refuge in him. One, two, three. He knows those who take refuge in him. Okay, let's put this all together now. And we'll put some prompts on the, on the screen. Here we go. One, two, three. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> All right. Good job. Turn to your neighbor and give him a high five. You did it. And also you accomplished what two small children did a few weeks ago. So good for you. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, let's open up our Bibles to Nahum. Uh, this is found in the back of our Old Testament. It's a section of the Bible that sometimes we skip over. It's hard to read. It's um, uh, 12 books in the Hebrew Bible. This entire section constitutes just one book, and they call it the 12. But in our Bibles, we have separate uh, 12 books, and we call these the minor prophets. The minor prophets aren't minor because they're unimportant. They're minor just because they're short. And these are tough books Uh, Each of these prophets lived in a specific timeline in Israel's history, and and it's very contextual, and so it can be easy to kind of get lost. Some of this is is very, it's filled with wrath, like our book today. Some of this is apocalyptic. Uh, Some of this has just some very specific things to Israel, and so a lot of Christians or Bible readers are like, okay, you kind of... You just kind of burn through it. But uh, today we're going to actually sit, sit here for just a, a few minutes and we're going to learn about this book. Um, let's, let's start with the first verse and then get some context now. In uh, Nahum 1.1, I'll put it on the screen. It says, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. All right, what's that mean? Well, first of all, this book is written by a guy named Nahum. And it's an oracle. An oracle is a vision. So, so God gave this man a vision, um, like a, a mental image of the future, and then he wrote it down and he preached it. It says he's from Elk, Elk, Elkosh. Uh, if you're, for you elk hunters, you're like, oh, where's that? Uh, it's like Elkton. No, it's not. Uh, Elkosh, we actually don't know where this is. This is... In Israel, somewhere we think there's a couple theories. This is interesting. One is it's actually not in Israel. There's a there's a, a village in Iraq called Alkosh, 
and that's where, actually, there's a tomb to Nahum there, but it would be weird for an Israelite to be from not Israel, so we're not sure he was from there, or that's Elkosh, this one. Another theory is that Elkosh is a.k.a. Capernaum. Anybody heard of that uh, Israelite village, Capernaum? Capernaum's pretty famous in the New Testament. Jesus lived there. Jesus kind of had a home there, and he did a lot of ministry there, so, so Capernaum shows up a lot. The word Capernaum is a two-part Hebrew word. It's Capernaum, uh, it's village of Nahum. So we think maybe he was from there, which would be, I think, interesting that Jesus was from there uh, as well, or at least he lived there, rather. So we don't know. I just, it's just, um, just some Bible trivia stuff, some nerd stuff. Uh, I'm going to make nerds out of all of you eventually, uh, even those who go uh, slow. Okay, so um, <laughs> it also uh, tells us about this vision, about the impending fall of Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of the ancient empire of Assyria. Now, Nineveh, that may sound familiar because this is the second minor prophet that God sent to speak about Nineveh. Do you remember the other minor prophet, what his name was? Jonah. Jonah, yeah, that's right. We did an entire series on this book earlier this year in the month of April. You can get on our website, and, and those, are, those are really great sermons. Uh, um, that sounded wrong. I don't know. It's, just, it's a great study is what I meant. Uh, and maybe they're okay sermons. But um, this is, So this is fascinating to me, guys, that of the 66 books of the Bible, two of them God devotes to talking about Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, this ancient world power, the Bible's real history. So in, in your notes, your first fill-in, what we have in Nahum is the sequel to Jonah. This is the sequel. This is part two. He gives us the conclusion of what was begun all those years prior in Jonah. It's actually about 170 years difference. Here's a timeline that we built way back in April when we studied Jonah. I'll just add a little bit to it there on the end. Jonah preaches in Nineveh, we think, around 780 B.C., 790, 750. It's hard to pin that down. We'll call it 780. And then, of course, um, uh, Nineveh, uh, Assyria, uh, conquers the northern kingdoms of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, the 10 tribes, they're lost forever. And, uh, and then they stop in the southern kingdom. God does some miracles there at, uh, at Jerusalem. And then some time passes and then Nahum comes on the scene about 615 and, uh, and, and gives this, this vision. And then in, in 612, the Babylonians and the Medes destroy Nineveh, so about three years after. So that's kind of the context historically. Now, going back to Jonah, perhaps you recall that God assigns Jonah, the prophet, to travel to wicked Nineveh to preach a message of repentance and to preach a message of warning the uh, bitter, brutal enemies of Israel, the Assyrian Empire, were, were housed in Nineveh. They were enemies of God. They were enemies of everything that was good. This was a brutal, a brutal empire. And Jonah does not want to go. He says, no way, Yahweh, I'm going my way. Remember that? And he gets on a boat, and he goes the opposite direction. He's supposed to kind of go north and to the east, and he goes to the west. He's going to Spain on a boat. He buys a ticket 
Oh, he's like, oh, God has provided a way of escape. False, all right? He was just disobeying God. And then God sends a storm, and then the guys on the boat remember, they're like, hey, what's the cause of this storm? And they all look at Jonah, and they toss him overboard. And so he's floating around in the Mediterranean for a minute until what happens? A big fish comes and swallows him whole, doesn't chew him up, swallows him alive, like swallows him, and he's hanging out in, this, in the fish stomach, for three days, the fish then um, swims back to Israel, barfs him back up on the beach, and then kind of flicks his tail at the end, you know, and uh, maybe. <laughs> and he finally says, okay, God, you have my attention. And so he goes to Nineveh, and he, he's like, obeying, oh, right? But he preaches the world's worst sermon. You think you've heard some bad sermons, okay? <laughs> this is bad. Here's what it is. Like, let me summarize it. He gets to Nineveh. He goes into the town and he goes, you got 40 days, jerks, to repent. And I hope you don't because God's going to strike you down. He drops the mic and walks out. <laughs> Despite this terrible sermon, God uses it. And the people of Nineveh, they listen, they repent from the top down all the way to the king. It says that even the cows repented, which is really strange, but they went on a fast, and we think they fasted, everybody fasted, all the animals fasted, and the, the cows, you could hear them mooing and lowing because of their, the sin of the city, and they were legit repenting, and so the greatest revival, or at least one of them that's ever happened in the world took place, God holds back his judgment, and Jonah is sitting on a hill so disappointed that this revival is happening and then the book ends and you're just like wow that is like why it's and now we have the we have the uh, conclusion 170 years later Nineveh we see has reverted back to its old ways but even worse the brief period of repentance was was followed with with a reversion back to their terrible ways in fact they were they were worse than they were before Jonah preached by the time of Nahum and so Nahum now, God appoints to communicate the message of wrath and judgment. That's the message that Jonah wanted to preach. Oh, man, God, why couldn't I have gotten Nahum's ministry? All right. So, of course, he didn't say that because he was dead. But had he been alive, this would have been the case. So that's the context. Let's keep going. Nahum's prophecy then marks the end of the Assyrian reign of terror and destruction on earth. If you just look at chapter 1, verse 14, this kind of sums up the entire book. It says, the Lord has given commandment about you. The you is Nineveh or Assyria. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the, mental, the metal image. This is the, uh, sorry, this is the idols of, of Assyria. They're cut off. I will make your grave for you are vile, says the Lord. So God's not messing around, okay? He's not pulling any punches here. You are vile. You are detestable, God says to this people. The Hebrew word for grave means burial site, and that's exactly what Nineveh became, quite literally. So look at that. God says to Nineveh, no more. You will be no more. No more. We're done with you. Enough. The wickedness had reached its full. The Lord was ready to end this nation. 
Now, the wickedness of Assyria is well written about. It's well recorded in history. They had a series of brutal kings. They were all brutal, except for maybe the one that we don't know exactly who repented. But one of these brutal kings was named Asher Nasser Paul II. Here he is. This is a a statue likeness of him made in the uh, 800s BC. There's an ancient inscription where this king describes how he treated his prisoners of war. Let me read it to you. He says, they're young men and old I took prisoners. Of some I cut off their feet and hands. Of others I cut off the ears, noses, and lips. Of the young men's ears I made a heap. Of the old men's heads I made a tower. I exposed their heads as a trophy in front of their own city. The male children and the female children I burned in flames. The city I destroyed and consumed with fire. Horrible. Horrible things. The Ninevites by the time of Nahum were also known for skinning people and then using the human skin to cover their couches and other furniture. This was a nation of Hannibal Lecters. This was a sick, monstrous people where evil had reached new depths that humanity had never known before. It's no surprise then that the Lord would say in verse 14, no more. In verse 12, he says, though the Assyrians are at full strength and they are many, they will be cut down and pass away. Now, how did this happen? Again, this is, this is foretelling what was going to happen. And, and, and Nahum does this in detailed and brutal uh, description in the rest of the book. If you keep reading, let me give an example of the detail. Again, this is a vision beforehand. This is the fall of Nineveh. Verse three of chapter two, I'll put that on the screen. The description of the fall of Nineveh, the shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. So this is prophesying about the Babylonians and the Medes. The armies of the Babylonians would come and descend upon Nineveh. And history tells us that the Babylonian war, uh, war garb was red. They wore red on the battlefield. And it's right here. Their officers wore red. Sometimes where we read that they painted their skin with, with dye and blood of bulls, and then they covered their, their shields with red-dyed leather. And they would approach their enemies to intimidate. And there was this red wall of blood basically saying implicitly, we're about to make you bleed and die. And if you can imagine now the greatest city in the world at the time, Nineveh, and the great wall around Nineveh that Jonah had ridden around, and the men of Nineveh are, are guarding it, and they're on top of the wall, and they're usually the bullies, but now, now the tide has turned, and they see coming in the plain, marching towards Nineveh, thousands and thousands of Babylonian warriors and officers and chariots, as Nahum describes here, and the chariots have at least three guys in them, one to drive, and then two on each side to just mow down whoever is in their path. And then it says there's a forest of spears, almost like a Tolkien film, 
right? Like a Lord of the Rings movie where the soldiers are marching and they're and they're and they're chanting and they've got their brandished spears and they're and they're just it's like death is on its way. And this is how the Assyrians were brought down. Nahum says that it was a city of blood in verse 1 of chapter 3. What the Assyrians had done to so many others was now wrought down upon their own heads. There's another interesting detail in verse 11 of chapter 3. You will also be drunken. You will go into hiding. Nineveh will be hidden, says the Lord. And it was. For 2,400 years, it was buried in the sands of northern Iraq, completely erased from the land. Until the 1840s, when British and French archaeologists found it and started digging it out. This was a revolutionary discovery. There's actually classic paintings about the dig. Here's one from 1850. You can see the artifacts that the archaeologists were digging. I mean, this is, this is an amazing find. At this point in Western society in the 1840s, by now, liberal theological viewpoints had settled into Europe and America about the Bible. And in every college, except for a few, they were teaching that the Bible is not to be taken seriously because it lacks historical basis. It's filled with stories and fables, and any truth claims that the Bible makes should not be necessarily taken as real. And so there was, uh, there was sort of a, an anti-deconversion sort of, of Europe through, through, we call it, higher criticism. And this was, this, was, this was part of the culture of, 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 of Europe, and it's still happening today. But then, but then this happens. And it's like the city that the liberal scholars said, well, you know, Nineveh is an example of why we shouldn't believe the Bible because it's not a real city. And then what do you know? It's a real city. What do you think about that, you smarty pants? <laughs> I have no comeback. People were in awe of this. The entire Europe, continental Europe, uh, England, uh, the, the British, they brought a bunch of this stuff back in the, um, in the 1850s and they set up an entire Ninevite palace recreation that the Londoners and the British people could go, go look at and walk through at the British Museum, which is the oldest museum in the world, public museum, and artists exploded with new works and paintings because they were totally captivated by this find. It's like a real place, the Assyrians and Nineveh, and then the jewelers of London recreated the Ninevite designs and people started trusting the Bible again. Today, you can actually go to the British Museum and see, you can see these things that are painted and you can walk up to them. You're not allowed to touch them, I tried. <laughs> Once again, Christy and I were able to go to London this summer and we were inches away from actual evidence of history that is in the Bible. Sadly though, also today, ISIS terrorists, you may have heard this, have tried to destroy what remains at the site of Nineveh destroying their own history to fit their agenda. 
But relief efforts are constantly launching to save these artifacts. Just last year, new carvings were discovered. This was, um, this was part of a canal leading into Nineveh, and this carving uh, was unearthed in 2021. Guys, when God wants to say no more, he says no more. And when he wants to bury evil, he will bury evil. And when he wants to uncover evil or uncover the, the evidences of evil so that we look upon it and believe in him, even in the rediscovery, he can do it. Do you see the hand of the Lord, the power of God, the wrath of God? This is the book of Nahum. It's very much that God is powerful. He is a God of wrath and he will not let evil persist forever. In the midst of this judgment, in this book, it's a dark book, we actually see some hope. And it's what the girls memorized in and out. This beautiful verse in verse 1-7. But this whole section of passages in chapter 1 contains unbelievable truth about God's character. Can I just read some of this and we just comment for a few minutes? Go to, go to verse 2. We read verse 1 of chapter 1. And then we're going to read through verse 8. So follow along if you have your Bible. Here's what it says. Oh, Lord. Oops, wrong book. That's Habakkuk. (laughs) Verse (laughs) 2. See how easy it is to mess up the minor prophets? I just did it. Verse 2. Sorry. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Those two things go together. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm and the clouds of the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. We think this is a reference to the Babylonians. We have some record of the siege of Nineveh. We think they dammed up the river that went through Nineveh and then released the waters and it crashed into the walls and it disintegrated the walls. That's one of the reasons why they were able to get in. Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers. These are lush places talking about the power of God over the climate. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand, verse 6, before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. We see many character traits of God here. This is answering the questions of what's God like? What's God's character like? And of course, the setting is the fall of Nineveh. So let's look at a few. We can't look at all of these for time, but I just have a couple on your handouts. The first character trait we'll look at is in verse two, that God is jealous. I think this is a fascinating attribute of God's character, that God is a jealous God, which is a strange way to describe God because you think, well, God is good. 
right? We just read that over and over again. And how can he be good and jealous? Because isn't jealousy kind of a bad thing? Well, it turns out that jealousy has several forms to it that don't apply to God. For example, it's the kind of jealousy that, that wishes you had something somebody else has, like enviousness, um, like Jonah wishing he were Nahum, theoretically, or putting it in our times, I, I wish I had that guy's truck. I wish, I wish I had their money. I wish I had their hair. I don't know. What, you just, somebody has something, and you, you, you wish you had it. You're becoming envious, and that's a form of jealousy. But God's not jealous like that because God is totally complete. He's everything. He has no needs. He has no lack. He has no logical reason to be jealous. Therefore, he is not jealous in this way. So how is God jealous? Well, he's jealous in the most pure form, and that is this. He wants no rivals for our affections. When we start giving our hearts away to something that's not him, namely our idols, that's when his jealousy applies. The Lord went to great lengths and he paid an enormous cost to win our affections. That is the blood of his son. He wins our affections and our allegiances at great cost. And so he's jealous for us. His desire is that we would be in a monogamous relationship with him in our hearts and that we wouldn't have idols that we pine after and that we secretly love and that we lust after, that we wouldn't have another God and that we wouldn't, we don't have idols like the Assyrians had idols, but our idols are more sophisticated and, and I don't know, more westernized, more scientific, more modernized, but they're still idols, yeah? We still have, give our hearts over to things and put the place of the Lord in our heart and we shove other stuff in there. And so this is how God is jealous. The first commandment, you may remember, Exodus chapter 20 with Moses, is that we would have no other God before him because he is a jealous God. He is also, another attribute, slow to anger. That's in verse three. The Lord is slow to anger. You see, friends, it takes a long time for God to move. His wrath is real. God is good and God is loving, but God has wrath. What is wrath but perfect love's response to sin? But his wrath is not driven by emotional outbursts like ours can be. In the Bible and in life, don't you see wickedness persist? We see this, the bad guy is still there. Why, how is that guy still around year after year, decade after decade? Evil can persist century after century and then no more. God says no more. Every evil empire on this planet has fallen. Every evil empire currently will fall. Assyria was toppled by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were conquered by the Greeks. The Greeks were conquered by the Romans. The Romans were conquered by the Vandal Horde. You name it. Every single evil empire has its day, and then there's a day of reckoning. 
Sometimes the delay makes it seem like the guilty parties are getting away with it. If you just look short term, it's like they're getting away with it. How could God allow this? But it's not just the short term that God has in mind. He also has the long term. His grand purposes oftentimes take a long time to unfold. And remember, Nahum reminds us in verse 3, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Justice will come. Justice will happen. But more often than not, the Lord is much, much slower than we would be if we had the power. Can someone at least nod? Are you, do you agree with this? But God isn't, he's not, he's not like us in this way. This is where God and humans are so different. This is his character. He's slow to anger. We should be slow to anger. We're commanded to be as Christians. In the book of James, we're commanded to be slow to, why? Because we're after the Lord's character. His time is not our time. His delayed judgment is oftentimes a form of grace. Remember Jonah, all right? He's giving the Assyrians time to repent. He's giving opportunities to turn around and to face him and to run into him and to run away from sin and evil. He's giving opportunities and time to walk in the right direction. He's giving space for individual people to come to their senses, but that's not forever. You see, guys, there's Jonah time, and then there's Nahum time. You know what I'm saying? And we never know how long in between Jonah and Nahum. Now, we know now it's about 170 years. Wouldn't it have been nice if God said to Jonah, hey, hey, buddy, chillax. It's all going to work out. Quit your bad attitude. But he doesn't say the time. He keeps the timing to himself about most things. I had this thought. Um, we're talking to the elders about this book. And what if, what if Jonah had a vision to pastor the people of Assyria in their revival? What if he had shepherded and stewarded them and taught them the ways of the Lord? What if, what if he had just lived his whole life in Nineveh in the midst of this revival and discipled the king and the people in the ways of God? Maybe their revival would have actually taken root. I don't know. Boy, Jonah gets a bad rap. But God doesn't tell us the gap between Jonah time and Nahum time. Only God knows God's timing, but he's slow to anger. And this is a critical element of his character. And thank God for that. And then the last one we'll cover is God is good. Verse 7. This is our double-double verse. It's, it's overflowing with beauty. The word good here in the Hebrew is one of those things you look up in the Hebrew dictionaries that pastors have, and you have to keep scrolling because there's so many sub-definitions to what this word means. For example, the Hebrew word good means that God is pleasant, that God is agreeable, that God is fair, God is patient, God is loving, he's excellent, he's pure, he's wise, knowledgeable, and sweet. These are all the definitions that you'll see for the Hebrew word for good. We also see here in this passage that God, he knows 
who is faithful to him. He blesses those who stay faithful. He never forgets your name. In the day of wrath, he will be a refuge. In the day of wrath, we can, we can, we can quantify that in multiple ways. There's days of wrath on this in our time, and then there's the day of wrath where the reckoning of all evil empires and all peoples and all nations will be brought to bear by the Lord Jesus, the victor holding the sword with the tattoo on his thigh. By the way, as a Christian, if you have a tattoo, so does Jesus. So there you have that. The day of wrath is why we run to Jesus. He's our fortress and our help in the time of trouble. His goodness has made a way of escape. We don't have to be freaked out about the future. We don't have to be freaked out about when evil days are upon us. This is the message of Nahum. This is the message of the gospel. We don't have to worry about the day of wrath. When you're tucked away in Jesus, you're safe. He knows your name. He never forgets. This is our good God, the ultimate, the ultimate Savior. Nahum points us to Christ. The character of God is embodied in Jesus every step. And so, my friends, this is the book of Nahum, and this is Nahum 1-7. So before we end today's message time, I want to just take a moment, if you wouldn't mind, of reflection and, and gratitude to you, church. This is officially our last year of biblical literacy Sunday morning teaching of the year 2022. Now, if you're a guest with us, you may wonder what is year of biblical literacy, or we call it Yobel. Yobel is a project that Redeemers began on January 1st. We had some objectives this year as a church family to immerse ourselves in the scripture, to fall in love with the Bible to grab hold of the Bible, to talk about the Bible, to read the Bible, to memorize the Bible, to study the Bible, to look at the, the topics that the Bible cares about, and to just try to, try to just take a deep dive in the scriptures. And all year, we've been doing that. We've been doing that through our cover-to-cover -cover reading plan, which many of you have been on. That, that ends in just a few days. And so for some of you, it's the first time you've read the Bible from cover to cover. So congratulations, others of you, you do this a lot. But that's, a, that's an achievement. It's hard to read this stuff, and it's hard to stay disciplined at times when you're kind of coming up against some really hard passages. You press through, you keep reading. So that's cover to cover. We've also offered crash courses where we looked at, at, at difficult topics. We actually studied in depth the book of Revelation in one of our crash courses. Many of you came to that. Over 200 a night came to that. We did a Bible conference where we invited scholars from around the country to come teach us. We binged the Bible for a whole weekend. That was a lot of fun. And then we've done Sunday night lectures, many of them, where we, top, we tackle easy topics, yeah? Like, uh, where do people go when they die? And what does the Bible have to say about, I don't know, uh, uh, what, the evil? And it, we just did this one a couple weekends ago. Evil, actually last weekend. And why does a good God allow evil? So we really went for it. We looked at theology. We looked at topics of our time. And so, Redeemers, as we come to the end of this, I want to say thank you so much. Thank you for engaging. Thank you for deep diving. And thank you for embracing God's word. Let's give God a big hand and a, a thanks. Good job, guys. That said, we're not done, okay? We're not done. Here's the thing. 
Everywhere you turn, and we've said this before, but it's worth repeating. Everywhere you turn in culture, it's the same message as in the 1840s. Ah, the Bible's, the Bible's pointless. The Bible's confusing. The Bible's not true. The Bible's filled with contradictions. The Bible has old morality that, don't, that, doesn't, that doesn't hold in today's modern sensibilities. The Bible is, is, is not worth basing your life on. So just ignore it. Just drop kick it. Just cherry pick it. Just pick out the one, two verses that make you feel good and slap that on your bumper sticker and be good. But certainly don't read it, don't obey it, and don't memorize it. To all of that, I say, false. I'm quoting Dwight Schrute right now from The Office. (laughs) False. The Bible is awesome. The Bible is awesome, and we need to hang on to it. And we need to go the other direction. We need to keep reading and keep memorizing and keep obeying the Bible. We need to hang on to it in the times where we're confused. We need to hang on to it and read it and base our life upon what God says to us. It's the only infallible instruction that we have from God. And so next year, we're not going to just take a break. We're going to continue to press on and keep on in the scriptures and basing our life in the scriptures unashamedly, fearlessly, friends. And remember, as you read the Bible, it points to Jesus. Thank God for Jesus, his son. The Bible talks about Jesus, points us to Jesus. So read about him, believe in him, put your faith in him, put your trust in him, build your life upon Jesus because he is the only one who has all the answers in the palm of his hand. He's the only one who is the fortress in the time of trouble. He's the only one that is the good shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life. So keep reading the scriptures and keep loving Jesus, everybody. 